Welcome to Sivako Road to Avatar. My name is Sean Alexander and I'll be your guide to the world of Pandora and beyond. To support this show, head on over to www.patreon.com slash avatarpod, where you can become a patron and gain access to exclusive content. Joining me on today's podcast, I have two very special guests. So special guests, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I am Alex Caps. I am the DM or the district manager of the podcast Overworked and Underplayed, which is a D&D podcast for young professionals by young professionals. And uh, joining me is one of our cast members. What up? It's your boy Marcel Hardy, and I play Richard Cox on Overworked and Underplayed. He is a human consultant turned halfling bard who wholly believes it's better to be lucky than to be good, but it's best to be both. And thank you both so much for joining along for this. And it's a it's an exciting episode. I'm I've been really looking forward to this one. Oh, as have we. Uh, but before we get to our main topic, I have a couple questions which I throw out to all my guests. Uh, the first is of which is when did you first see Avatar? Okay, so uh, I first saw Avatar. I was in college at the time. Uh, and about a week after it came out, I was sitting on the couch with one of my friends from college, uh, and he looks over at me and he said, bro, have you seen this Avatar movie? It's life-changing. And I was like, yeah, I saw some commercials for it. And I was like, uh, you know, I, as a, uh, I was studying engineering at the time, and whenever I see sci-fi movies like that, I'm always like, oh, there's going to be something that takes me out of it. There's going to be something that takes me out of it. Well, he drugged me out there, and I'm glad he did. Uh, because the whole time I'm sitting there going, okay, let's just wait for it. Where's the, where's the thing going to be? And then you get the opening shot of the film. And it's the ISV Venture Star coming out of deep space transit into orbit around Pandora. And I see the design of the spacecraft, and my eyes just got as big as saucers because I saw my favorite feature you'll ever see on any kind of, of sci-fi, like hard sci-fi spacecraft, which is I saw massive radiators. And it's something that everyone misses because it's not sexy, right? It's not the cool thing. It's just a heat dispersal element. But in space, that's the only way you can disperse heat because you don't have the normal systems that we can use on uh, in like an atmospheric environment. So I saw that and I go, well, hold on a second. There might be something to this. And from that moment forward till the end of the movie, I was drawn in. Like it, the 3D was amazing. And that was uh, that was a that was a really fun experience for me. Uh, how about for you, Marcel? Yeah. So the first time I saw Avatar, I was in high school. Um, I was probably a sophomore, I think, in two thousand nine. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I went and saw it with my dad. It probably wasn't opening weekend, but it was probably close to then. And I just remember because like. 3D was not good in 2009 and like we were just sitting there and we were just like so like we 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 legit thought we were on the planet like that's just how immersed into the movie we were um and so when the second one came out I was like I have to go see this in IMAX 3D like I just I have to relive that experience that I had when uh me and my dad went to go see it oh I I love hearing like people's like first experiences with Avatar and just how sort of 
feels revolutionary and i feel like people don't appreciate how much of a moment it was at the time yeah i uh i can think of uh uh the scene where he jumps into the the cavern or, or he go i think so he goes for his first flight and uh or he's going to bond with the the banshee and you see the view over the the crest and is this deep chasm and the 3D in the theater i i have uh uh height issues like uh uh with heights and stuff and i saw that and i felt my heart rate increase like i was there it was wild uh that brings me on nicely to my second question which is yeah do you have a favorite scene from either of the movies ooh i i really uh, you know i know i kind of went into this already but the stuff to do with the the long distance space travel between earth because the the crafts are just designed they're so believable for that level of advanced technology that just really scratches my itch but if i had to go with a second favorite since i already talked about that one uh the first time you see nighttime on pandora would probably be it because i had never seen a film that had uh such a drastic difference between day and night on a on an alien world like that and i thought that was rather unique and clever yeah i think also kind of in that nighttime scene kind of area in the first movie like when all those like creatures came out at night like it just had a different feel to it kind of like what alex was saying and so that one was really stuck out to me and then in the second film probably the tree i guess it wasn't the tree of life but like the the water tribes kind of underwater tree of life scene that really kind of stuck with me from the second movie yeah it's uh it's got such unique flavor to both as well i feel like especially in regards to those tree of souls that you've got both having such distinct feelings and looks to them Mm -hmm. and you know what that kind of brings us nicely onto our topic of today we're taking Avatar into the world of Dungeons and Dragons, uh, and this is because the Dungeons and Dragons movie is coming out on the day this uh, this podcast episode releases. Uh, so, I guess my first question to you both is: Are you excited for the Dungeons and Dragons movie? So, uh, I was uh, I was the biggest skeptic in the world when the movie like w- when it was first announced because. Uh, I don't know if you're aware or not, but there have been attempts to make Dungeons and Dragons movies in the past, and they've had, let's just say, uh, mixed levels of quality. And I thought, well, here comes another studio cash grab on something that's just a hot property right now. And then the first trailer released, and what got me, you know. The up to a certain point in the trailer, it was your standard fantasy tropes and and set pieces and everything, and I was like, okay, you know, this will probably be a fun movie. But there's a scene in the first trailer where a black dragon swoops down, and it it gets ready to use its breath weapon, and I saw this and I go, oh, here comes fire, because they don't know what you know, they're just using like the the Dungeons and Dragons name. And it spews this putrid black acid everywhere. And I literally jumped out of my chair and started screaming, Oh my God, they're actually doing it right. So that was, uh, from that moment forward, I've been extremely excited. And 
our group or our podcast is actually looking to go do it as like a group uh, for the opening weekend. So we're, uh, I, I don't want to speak for Marcel, but I know from what I've heard, we're all really excited. Yeah, I was excited from the word go. Like, I really love movies, good or bad. So I was like, oh, it, it should at least be fun, right? Um, and then, yeah, those trailers kept coming out. And the more they kept showing things from D&D that were like actually D&D, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like, oh, that's a that's a gelatinous cube. I know what that is. Or, oh, that's an owl bear. Like, that's, uh, we've seen those in the game. So it was really, it was really fun. And Chris Pine, I think, is pretty good at being like that funny guy, but like not a comedian kind of funny guy. So yeah, I've been pretty much excited since I first heard about the movie. Amazing. And yeah, the reason I wanted to do this episode was because uh, the new movie is starring Michelle Rodriguez, who was previously in Avatar. So that was my sort oh, of yeah. link that's for a, today. That's a good yeah, link. Good, good segue. <laughs> and also just the excuse because for the last year I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons and uh, I've been obsessed basically since. And I've wanted to try and figure out a way to get Avatar into Dungeons and Dragons in some form. Um but I'm very new to the game still. There are people who have a way more experience than I do. Um, so I thought I would recruit some people to help me out, which is where Alex and myself come in to help me. Um, so, yeah, I guess my first question is, where do we begin with this? Well, hold on. I have a question for you then. Ooh, okay. If you're obsessed, how many sets of dice do you have so far? I have I've only three sets of dice. All right, all right. Those rookie numbers, you got to you got to pump those up, champ. I know. Uh, no, it's the stereotype among players. As I stare at my like twenty sets of dice back here that I almost never use. Um, so, uh, I want to start with our you know on our main topic. Uh, there's one very important thing, and that is when it comes to uh, when it comes to making a campaign for D and D. A lot of people get hung up on this one thing, and that is that D&D is not a setting. D&D is a, is a set of rules. It is merely, think of it like a physics textbook. Uh, you know, if I do this, what happens? If I do that, what happens? What does this mean? What does that mean? So a lot of people get hung up on the idea that you can only use the D&D rules for a quote-unquote fantasy setting like, uh, you know, dragons, knights, that kind of thing. So once you get past that idea and you get, you get to the realm of being able to redress things, uh, you, you can pretty much do whatever you want. Um, but the most important thing to do when building a world like this or building a campaign is you have to set the tone. And it, same with film, same with books, because... If you're if you're going for something serious and you throw something just slapstick silly right in the middle of it, it's going to take you out of the immersion. Uh, we talked earlier about the 3D immersion. Well, there's a similar kind of immersion that happens when you get a really good campaign together and you get a group that's working together or working to undermine each other, but they're engaged. And so you got to set the tone. So for... Uh, for a Pandora campaign uh, with the D&D rule set, in my mind, you have uh, a few possible tones. And the first one is uh, the uh, one that's most similar to the character journey in the film that I called going native. And this is the idea that your characters are avatars 
and you are you become like you're either uh working to try to obtain the unobtainium for the corporation or you are uh you decide no we're going to ally with the navi and fight the corporation uh the second tone was uh, I call for the corporation where maybe you're playing maybe your party wants to play as the invading uh security forces and wants to defend the outpost or wants to establish the beachhead and then the last one is to actually play as navi and discover like what are these humans doing here um the there's a few very uh, very different ways each of those take you. I think the most interesting one and the probably the easiest one is following the path that the movie set out for, uh, uh, for like uh, Jake Sully and uh, and I have my reference sheet here. Uh, Norm Spellman, where they were they were the uh, Avatar characters and had to get accepted by the Navi and and to be able to work with them. Uh, in my mind, that's the most interesting way. Uh, and once you have your tone, then you can start working on the world building. What aspects of it do you want to focus on? And James Cameron, uh, one thing he is absolutely fantastic at, whether it is uh, Terminator or Aliens or Avatar, is giving you a very lived-in feeling world and giving you lots to work with. Um, he's also really good at the... Uh, are you familiar with the show Don't Tell for storytelling? Of course. So one of my favorite examples of this is... And I've used stuff like this. I've actually stolen this almost uh, uh, shot for shot for one of my games before, is the scene where Jake is wheeling himself into the base for the first time off of the shuttle and the dump truck passes by. And you see these like eight foot long arrows sticking out of these massive tires on it. And you're like, what was shooting those? And that right there, that is uh, when it comes to doing some kind of a, a storytelling in the game, that is definitely a perfect example of the show-don't-tell thing that w is the kind of thing you need to bring into a game like this. Uh, Marcel, do you have anything you want to jump in with? Yeah, I think to kind of piggyback a little bit off of what Alex was saying, the the theme or, like, that tone, and then, like, the, the that's, I guess, probably more on the dungeon master side of it. And then on the player side, I would probably say it's a little bit more about like your character and what kind of, how you want to fit into that tone. Like, um, like, do you want to be shot for shot Jake Sully or do you want to play it a little bit differently? Like really kind of getting into the character of like, what would I do in this kind of situation? Um, so I think that's probably a good way to start. Like, how do you how do you get started into bringing this? Because that's one of the things when we started our podcast, it took us a little while to kind of figure out is like, all right, well, this is the kind of the idea of what character I want to play is like, how does this sound? And then like some of the other characters like, well, I want to do something similar. Like, how can we be different or how can we like work together? So I think that kind of like character work is also a good starting place. Yeah. And I, I love that you mentioned about that moment from the movie of, yeah, the dump truck going past with those giant arrows. It is such a moment where you are instantly brought into their world and sort of shown the stakes of it as well. 
to be oh, like, yeah. this is this is what you're up against. Yeah, and it's like, you know, as a as you see an arrow that's as long as you are. And I know later in the film, you see like an actual human get just absolutely skewered with one of those. And you're like, oh my God, I think I would rather have just gotten shot. Like, that's awful. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think another good example of the show don't tell uh, aspect of it that is something could easily be incorporated into a game is, uh, you know, the first scene where Quaritch and Jake Sully are talking to each other and Quaritch is lifting weights, he points out his scar. And you see this guy who is, you know, the stereotypical macho man, soldier guy, knows what he's talking about. He's a grizzled veteran. He doesn't make rookie mistakes. And you see that even he got jacked up. You know, that really sets the like when we're talking about tone and everything, if you're playing as human characters, that really sets the the stakes and the tone of, wow, if I don't pay attention, I'm going to get absolutely destroyed once I leave this base. Mm. Yeah. And, and and I feel like, to me, I always felt like Quaritch, because he is such like a character as well, that he's so full of stereotypes of this kind of, yeah, the <laughs> macho type of army guy. He almost fits so perfectly into what into like becoming a character in a game like uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, absolutely! I would agree with that one hundred percent. It's very easy to like, as like while playing games like this, like to create a character that's not necessarily like one dimensional, but like you were saying, like is a character has lots of stereotypes because it makes it easier, I think, for the players to to band together to go against that kind of bad guy. Oh, I, I might be in the minority here, but Quaritch is my absolutely my favorite character of the whole film. Uh now now don't don't uh don't hit me with any spoilers. I still I'm I'm a bad fan. I still haven't seen the second one. I I uh I have a nine month old child at home that has limited my opportunities to go out to uh see movies. So uh I, I've heard that he makes a reappearance in the second one and that's all I wanna know, but he is I just love the just the the pure one-mindedness of him. He is a force of almost like a force of nature that you either stop him or you get stopped by him. And he makes an absolutely perfect villain for a campaign. Especially if you're doing the the you know if you want to do your own version of the basically the story of Avatar 1. He is the like I cannot think of anything better. I mean, he has minions. He has uh. You look at at when you think about like a boss fight in a video game. Korich has like three modes. I mean, you know, you've got the you've got taking down his airship. Then you have fighting him hand to hand, uh, with his machine. And you could even make it keep going after that. Like he gets out of it, still has his mask on. Uh, and you could, which that would probably be really short because the Navi would just snap him in half. But either way, you could still have like a multi-tiered boss fight, and he is just unrelenting. It is, it is, it, he is one of the best parts of that movie for being the worst person in the world. Just want to be clear. <laughs> yeah, no, I th- I think we're on the same page. Yeah, I, I adore the character. I do not want to know him in real life. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Would not grab a beer with Quaritch. <laughs> so I think that's like so interesting to hear that characters like him 
fit so nicely into that sort of framework and also for someone like you who obviously like you're creating these stories that you could see him and be like this is just so instantly like you could just drop him in straight away like don't need to change a lot to him oh yeah i mean and the thing is is that he's another part of it is he's such a caricature that and and you don't really get any backstory to him at least in the first film other than he was a soldier so he's such a a caricature that you could literally throw any name on him you wanted to and he works uh because there's probably on a, a you know a, a corporation that can afford to send people on six year you know round trip journeys or or is it one way i can't remember if it's one way or round trip either way they're sending these billions of dollars of of hardware on these long term journeys they definitely have like 10 more guys like him that that could probably show up the next week or you know in six months or whatever a few years so uh that is that is definitely if anyone is looking to do a, a pandora campaign that is an excellent starting point for a, a quote unquote big bad moving along from the the atmosphere and the characters and things you you start thinking about the mechanics of the game how is this going to work with the existing classes and race structure in the game so uh starting with your character creation you're generally most people will either pick their class first and then their race i like to do it the other way around uh because i i try to think of the character as as what was their background who are they who's their family you know what what is it they always wanted to be and then go from that way like almost like a a birth to to adulthood kind of thing and so the main two that you would look at is you have uh or well there's really three is you have the navi uh you have the avatars and you have humans so with the navi the one that stands out or I'm sorry, let's start with the avatars. The avatars, I feel like them and the Navi should have some differentiation. You see some physical differences. There's the hand differences. But I think it goes beyond that to uh, a oneness with the body and mind and also the uh, the fact that they grew up on the world versus they learned about it in a textbook. And so for me, when I see the Avatar, the first one that, tr- that I see is the Wood Elf. So in the uh, Player's Handbook, Wood Elves get a few things. Uh, they have dark vision, which helps them see at night, which is something, the fact that these, uh, the, the, the Navi have feline features, I feel like they would have some kind of dark vision. Uh, your sleeping works differently. And I think that follows with the idea that you're in the um, you're in the the syncing up machines that transfer your mind over to it. So maybe the avatar would sleep differently than a normal creature. And they have something called keen senses, which gives them uh, enhanced perception ability. Uh, there's a few other minor features of the wood elf, but it keeps them different enough from. Where the where with the actual Navi, I see them more as a different character race, which is called the Tabaxi. Now the Tabaxi, uh, I forget which book it is in, 
but they are more feline characters. Uh, they're anthropomorphic feline characters with a more humanoid shape. So they, they kind of, if you could imagine a wolf, uh, uh, not a wolf, a uh, an elf with cat-like features, that's kind of what they would look like. And they also have dark vision, but the big thing with them is they also get uh, enhancements to their stealth, and they have a feature called feline agility, which allows them to move very quickly uh, ever so often. Uh, and I feel like those two really match up well with that, that character dynamic, because you have, you have two races that are very similar to each other, uh, but they still have some differences which might make, like, for instance, the Na'vi characters might see them and be like, it's something not quite right about you. You know, something's a little different. You're an outsider. You're not exactly like us, but you kind of, you kind of have similar features to us. And I feel like that's a dynamic that really gets played up in the, at least the first film. Um, so that's my thoughts on those two, two races. The last one, You'd think humans would be the easy one, uh, but this is where I'm gonna throw the uh, throw in a little uh, 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 a little uh, tinkering. I don't think that the humans in Avatar act like the humans in D and D, and which is why, in my opinion, if you're doing humans in Avatar, you would instead use the dwarf race, specifically mountain dwarves. Uh, because they have inherent combat training, they're smaller than the than the elf or the tabaxi, and they have uh, a built-in armor proficiency representing their use of body armor, which is something that we regularly see the uh, that the Navi and the avatars don't necessarily use. Uh, Marcel, do you have anything you want to throw in there? Um, I think the only thing that I would add in at this point in time is that that question gets brought up a lot. So kind of after we kind of got introduced, Sean, I like looked up seeing if anyone else had made an attempt to bring Avatar into the world of D&D. And I think over the past few years, there's a lot of like subreddits like, hey, how would I do this? And one of the good things about Dungeons and Dragons, like Alex kind of described is like, what's called homebrew where you kind of take what already exists and either tinker it or come up with something new. And I've only found one successful ish attempt at someone trying to do that. And so they created their own race. That's pretty similar to what Alex described. So I'm actually kind of impressed. Um, and I can send you the link, Sean, of what I found. And it's kind of like goes through and like, so the Navi are, they're taller, they have longer limbs. So they're a little bit faster than humans would be. Um, like Alex was saying, they have like high proficiency in like nature being one with the outside. They're very perceptive and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's all that I would add at this point in time about it. But I think that what Alex said was, uh, really insightful, especially as soon as he said, I wouldn't make humans humans. I was like, he's going to say dwarves. And I thought <laughs> and the reason actually I thought it was going to be was because of the mining. Well, there's also that part of it. You know, they are there to mine. And what better, what better race in D&D to represent them than the people who are, like, most well-known for mining? And that brings an interesting point because you could also make the argument that maybe that's just the security forces. Maybe the scientists are actually gnomes. But there's a, this is where I come to the, the idea of everything in the D&D books 
that is not a, a mechanic, that is not you rolling dice and you get this number, you can change it. That's the beautiful thing about the game. Uh, you know, the, you sit down with your players and you say, hey, this is what I want to do. And this is how these things are going to work differently than what's in your book. And as long as everyone's okay with it, you can do whatever you want. And that's, the, that's what I love most about the game. Uh, these are things called house rules. And for something like this, you kind of have to house rule a few things. And we'll get more into that when we get into the classes. Uh, but Sean, do you have any questions or do you have any comments you want to add on, on as far as uh, what we've gone over so far with the uh, races of the different characters or anything? I mean, for sure, it's it's really interesting to think of it in that way, especially with the humans, because, yeah, the obvious fault would be, oh, humans are humans, easy, don't have to think about it. But the fact is, in the environment of Pandora, they are at complete odds with the world. They're not the standard. And the fact of bringing dwarf, like making them dwarves instead, the whole mining and to do with armor, it all makes sense. I, and I, I actually think that matches up so well. So uh, the, the fun one now is we get into classes. And this one is going to be really fun when we get to the human classes. But we're going to start with the Avatar Navi classes. So, uh, you know, in doing my research about the, the world of Pandora, I've, I've done a far deeper dive than I've done before. So this isn't just stuff that I knew off the top of my head. Uh, I came upon something called the Three Laws. Are you familiar with this? I am, yes. Okay. So the laws, you shall not set stone upon stone. Uh, you can't use the wheel, and you're not supposed to dig up metal from the ground. Um, so that really limits uh, where you can go with a Navi. Not as much with an Avatar. I think they have a little bit more leeway unless they want to get accepted by the tribe. Uh, you know, there is that. There is, you know, there are those players who just want to watch the world burn. So maybe they, maybe they don't care about what the tribe thinks. But specifically for the Navi. That leaves us with only a few classes. Uh, so the first one I'm going to start with is the most obvious, Ranger. I mean, they use bows, they use simple weapons, they uh, ride animals into battle. Uh, they have, but they're, they're beyond just being an animal. It's like a spiritual bond. And there's a few classes that really hone in on this. Um, the two that I think make the most sense are subclasses for the ranger that make the most sense is you have the hunter. Now, the hunter doesn't typically have a beast companion, but they are really good at hunting. And I imagine there's probably some tribe that we haven't met yet on Pandora that maybe they, are, they, they don't necessarily have as deep of a connection with the creatures as some others. Uh, but that is an option, at least. Uh, could also be a good option for uh, a avatar character, since if they aren't trained to use uh, to use that connection with the world and with nature, that uh, maybe they just care about uh, being the best at killing things, which is puts them at odds with the tribe, but would make sense for a campaign. But there's one in particular, one subclass in particular, that works so well for Navi and Avatar that join the tribe. And that is one called the Drake Warden. 
Now, Sean, are you familiar with the Drake Warden at all? I will be honest. I've pl- I've only played a ranger up to level three, and I <laughs> I was uh, is it swarm uh, the and I had a swarm of seagulls as my uh, attack. oh that's fantastic oh that sounds amazing. <laughs> so I am not aware of it, sadly. No. Yeah, um, I actually really like the swarm ranger, um, but uh, no. So the Drake Warden, their entire thing is that their additions to their class come from their connection with a dragon. Now, you start off uh, and you get a dragon that can't, uh, that can't fly. It just it, it walks everywhere. It's just a minor drake. And it can attack things. It follows you around. Uh, but with a little bit of, of homebrewing, that could very easily... Uh, become a dire horse uh, at that level. The The only change you that your party has to accept is the fact that uh, you can ride it. And it, if, you, if, you, if you say, hey, it's a little bigger than it's described in the book and you guys are allowed to ride it, then all of a sudden now your party of Drake Wardens has a, you know, a, a dire horse that they've bonded with and, can, and, it, and it continues on. Uh, later on, this class, and we'll get to this part when we do the Jake Sully character, uh, this creature, according to the book, sprouts wings. But you could very easily do a session where when your characters reach the level where their drake would have sprouted wings, you instead have the trial where they go to the, to the, the chasm full of banshees and they have to find one and bind with it at which point now they have a flying mount, which is actually something that's in the Drake Warden class. So by just reframing the idea of a ranger that rides a dragon into battle, you have very, in my mind, very easily have adapted that to the world of Pandora, and now you literally have the character from the film the, the, that made up the majority of the warriors in the tribe. Uh, and as I was reading through that, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Uh, there's a couple of other paths that you could go. Uh, you're a little limited based on the fact you can't use metal. Uh, but theoretically you could do a barbarian. Uh, I'm sure that, like I said, there's, there's probably some tribe that doesn't necessarily use animals for combat. Uh, barbarians are, are especially the path of the totem which involves using the magic of the world around you to draw strength from nature, feels like a very, a very uh, uh, on-theme kind of character. Uh, and of course, the druid makes really good sense, because druids in D&D are actually forbidden from using metal. Uh, that's something a lot of players miss when they're reading through the class description, but they're not allowed to use metal armor or metal weapons. And all of their magic is related to drawing upon the magic of the world, which seems very on brand with some of the the scenes of uh, various people uh, or various Navi members at the the Tree of Souls. Uh, but then I will posit one final class, which kind of comes out of nowhere, but I think makes sense, and that is the Bard. Now, traditionally in D&D, the bard is seen as like the, the uh, 
Well, like, for instance, in the film coming out, Chris Pine, his character is the bard. He has a guitar or a lute. He plays songs. He's uh, very charismatic. He, he does the, you know, he does the talking for the party. A lot of times it's played off for comedic value, but there is actually a bard uh, subclass called the College of Spirits. And the College of Spirits is the oral historian, uh, like one of the descriptions they give is like someone who has learned the oral history of their people and uses that as like, instead of like playing songs, they're storytelling or they're telling, you know, the myths of their, of their people. And to me, that makes sense for a Navi player that, that a Navi, maybe they're not focused on combat. Maybe they're focused on uh, channeling the powers of, of Awa and telling, using inspirational stories of their people's past. Like, uh, you know, I could see where they could use the, the rally cry of the, was it the Taruk Makto as like a inspiration to their warriors going into battle. Um, so, uh, Marcel, did you have anything that you wanted to comment on? If I was going to throw an oddball class in there, maybe Monk, just for their also like, not necessarily known for using metal weapons, but just superhuman feats of physical prowess. Like I could see that. Just multi-attack and then bonus action. And then I don't remember which subclass it is, but they also have like a, a connection to the kind of the spirit world. So I think you could, could tie that in, like kind of a cross between like the druid and the barbarian maybe. Yeah, I, th I think there's quite a lot of options, actually, which I'm I'm surprised by, because when I first thought about it, and as you said about the sort of the, the laws, the druid was the one that instantly came to mind um, for me, because of how interconnected that already is with how druids are within the game. Uh, but yeah, the, the fact that you could make a barbarian or could even make a bard, I think that gives you a lot of variety and means you're not going to just have a party of only rangers. Right, right. And another important thing, like I said earlier, about since you're the DM, you can do whatever it is you want. Uh, who's to say that the, that uh, you couldn't have a weapon that was actually, uh, that was like a, a Thanator claw on the end of a stick that didn't functional, functionally didn't act like a great axe, but it wasn't made of metal. And uh, it's not violating any of the laws. And that could give, like, for instance, your barbarian could have, like, his traditional weapon or his or hers traditional weapon. Uh, and you just have to think about how, how it will impact the game or how it will impact the flow. The other thing to think about is since you could have human-sized characters in it and since the Navi are larger, you can always just increase the die of whatever weapon it is they're using. And so for a club, instead of being 1d6, maybe it's 1d10 because it's it's like half of a tree, you know? And, and whereas like a human, uh, like them holding a human club might feel like holding a rolling pin, right? Mm. So there's all these options. Uh, and and I, I stress this, that players should never limit themselves by just what the book says. Especially if you're playing a game, uh, you know, among friends, it's a house game. Uh, but the most important thing is to make sure to make the rules known to everyone. 
and to make sure everyone's okay before you go monkeying with things too much. Um, Because there's also things you could do with Rogue. There's also things you could do with the Fighter. Uh, Now, some of those classes are a little more armor-dependent, or they're a little bit more weapon-dependent. So you do have to be careful, and you got to think about the mechanics of it just a little bit. But I am. Uh, if you guys don't have any more comments, I'm ready to move on to the one I'm really excited about, and that is the humans, or should I say the dwarves? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so the first thing we have to think about is the fact that the one thing that the humans in, on Pandora have going for them is that they don't follow the three laws and that they have technology. So how do we represent technology in a game like this if you want to have the humans be a big part, even to the extent of maybe you have a human party member, right? And I think back, are you familiar with Clark's three laws in science fiction? Uh, yeah, it's... Oh, it's in iRobot, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the film. Oh, that's, as, that's uh, Isaac Asimov's oh, laws. I'm mixing them up. <laughs> yeah, uh, Clark's third law is the one that's important. And uh. that is, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Ah, oh, I see. So it's the idea of if, if your culture is, you know, a thousand years behind another culture and they whip out an iPhone, well, you're going to think they're communicating with the gods, right? Like, how can they make these cat videos appear out of nothing? So, in my mind, uh, for human, you know, quote-unquote humans, uh, I'm just going to use the term human from now on to reference earlier where we said dwarves and gnomes as the actual race, per the book. You have paladins for the heavy combat soldiers in their mech suits. you know, when I watched, uh, I watched the film recently, uh, and I thought about how would you, if I'm a guy who wants to say, okay, I want to play in your Pandora game, but I want to be one of the humans in that mech suit. How would you make that happen? Well, what does the mech suit do? It provides protection against some of the weapons, although the fact that it can, it can't take an arrow shot is kind of alarming. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, it provides protection, and it allows them to use weapons they wouldn't normally be allowed to use that do a lot more damage. And so in my mind, their, their mech suits are the armor, uh, you know, your plate or your full armor. You could add additional rules to them. It also, uh, with the paladin, you have things like smites, where... Maybe instead of the Divine Smite being a radiant attack of holy energy, maybe it's a a burst of electromagnetic energy. Or maybe it's just a missile. (laughs) So, uh, and that comes down with warlocks, sorcerers, clerics, uh, wizards. They're all just different, different humans using different types of technology as their way of either exploring or or defending themselves or attacking in the world. 
What are your thoughts, Marcel? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I thought about this. There's like a spark in my mind when you're talking about the uh, the Navi's three laws in that Paladin could probably also go for them because that's one of the, the key features of the Paladin class is, you know, sticking to your tenet, sticking to your oath. Um, and so I think that you could play that into the Navi's as well. And instead of the smites being necessarily holy, and this is not necessarily a spoiler for you, Alex, but in the second movie, there's some some more divine kind of things that seem to go on with one of the characters that I could see kind of tying to that 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 function of the paladin class. It's such an interesting idea to frame it that way, though, to have magic in because obviously this is the one thing that I always thought was going to be difficult to like translate because there there isn't magic in the same way in Pandora and the same way that. In D and D, there's not <laughs> giant mech suits with machine guns, right? So right. Where, where do you cross them over and combine the two, basically? And and so, for instance, my first inspiration for this was, you know, in the same vein where I said, if I'm a player who wants to wear the mech suit and shoot the big gun, how does that work? Well, by that same vein, I thought about, well, if I'm the player who likes to play wizards who cast fireball, well, what is that? Well, instead of casting fireball, maybe he's using his communication device to call in an airstrike. So there's, and this is the one where I talk about if you're going to have player characters specifically holding these roles as humans, it takes a lot more work, but it is, there's still options for that. And it would just require you to do a little bit more on the back end before you get started. And I, I really just wanted to stress, and this is one thing, anytime anyone asks me for advice in the game, I stress to them that if it's your game, if you're the DM, you are the authority. And your job is to make sure the players are having fun. Uh, so if the, if the players bring you something like, well, I want to do this, you should be thinking instead of how that should that's going to break your game, you should be thinking of how can I incorporate that so this person is having fun doing the thing they want to do while not ruining it, like ruining the game for everyone else. And so there's options where you can come in and you can reskin some of these things. Like, for instance, the, uh, the warlock. You know, they sell their soul to the devil. Well, if that's not a, a like, corporate... Uh, a corporate miner. I don't know, you know, like like you're going to travel to this other world and you're going to mine this resource that the people who live there don't want to give up. That sounds like you signed one hell of a contract. <laughs> so, and their Eldritch Blast feature could just be, you know, it could be a little more fancy than just a gun, but at the end of the day, it is a ranged attack that deals X amount of damage when you hit. It's a gun. It's a it's a blaster. It's a you know a, a cannon. Whatever you want it to be, it can be. So uh, and of course you get down to the level of of there's even a class in D and D called an artificer, and their entire thing is that they build contraptions. Well, they're a mechanic. It's uh it's fairly simple to to redo some of these things with just a little bit of mental tinkering is what I call it. Yeah, Artificer was the one that sort of came to mind for me. And specifically was um, because Michelle Rodriguez's character, Judy, she is a mechanic. She's the oh, one yeah. who pilots the, uh, the chopper for the, uh, for the crew. 
And yeah, she, that that's sort of where I had in my mind for her. Yeah, and that definitely is a kind of character who would probably come in handy on a world like Pandora, being able to more easily control flying, uh, like a, a flying machine if your characters don't immediately jump in line and, and get their Akron. So, um, so that covers pretty much everything from a a uh, world-building or reflavoring perspective, uh, unless, Marcel, you had anything else you wanted to throw in there? Um, the only other thing that I wanted to throw in, and it's just maybe not necessarily the appropriate time, I kind of talked about it a little bit with like Reddit and seeing other people trying to create Pandora in D&D. One thing that I did find in my kind of like research was how many of the other James Cameron kind of IPs like Terminator and Aliens and even Titanic do have games. Like, so they're not necessarily Dungeons and Dragons, but people have created RPGs for those other IPs. But for whatever reason, Avatar just didn't get made. And I don't know if that's hilarious. He just kept things too close to the chest and people couldn't, you know, use the IP or what the deal is. But I just, I just found that interesting. So I think, Sean, if you want to make it big in the in the game making world this is your opportunity (laughs) (laughs) oh dear i I better get started now i might be finished by the time we get to the fifth one thanks for listening to part one of our dungeons and dragons special check back next week as we discuss how you can create the characters of jake sully natiri and quaritch in dungeons and dragons and play them yourselves thank you for listening this episode is dedicated to our patrons eric scrock patrick regal and lauren king to become a patron, visit www.patreon.com slash avatarpod. <laughs>